This message was preached as pulpit supply by Jared File. Feel free to share what you find here, and we hope that it is beneficial to you as you seek to know and follow Christ. If you turn in your Bibles to uh, Ecclesiastes chapter 12, um, I may be a supply preacher, but I've been with you for, I've been preaching for you uh, intermittently for the last year, uh, maybe a little bit more. Um, and we have walked through the book of Ecclesiastes, not every single chapter together, but uh, we've walked through um, the book of Ecclesiastes together, and today we are concluding that. As we've gone through the book of Ecclesiastes, the preacher has had this constant refrain, vanity of vanities, all is vanity uh, under the sun. Uh, as he looks out upon the world, the preacher um, he, he sees all these things and he just throws his hands up and says, it's all vanity, it's all meaningless. But he reminds us that's under the sun. And when we see that under the sun, it's a reminder he's looking at things not as they are, as a, as a part of God's world that they make, but it's as for the perspective of a world without God. Uh, if, if there's no God in the picture, if everything is just under the sun, as he talks about, then it's all vanity. It's all meaningless. This perspective from under the sun, um, from that way of looking at things, it looks like man and animal, they both die and they both go to the same place. So what's the point? Um... From under the sun, it looks like we, we just, we get up, we go to work every day, and we just keep doing the same thing over and over again. And we might do things to try to find some enjoyment in pleasure, in, in what we eat or drink, but if it's really just all under the sun, if it's really just life without God, then what's the point? It's all vanity, vanity, all is vanity, says the preacher. But there are glimpses of hope within Ecclesiastes. He tells us that God is the one who has time in his hands. There is a time for birth and there's a time for death. There's a time uh, to, to rejoice and that there's a time to grieve. And all of those different times and God holds all the times in his hands. He tells us we ought to rejoice while we're young. He says, rejoice for this is what God's given you. He's not uh, looking at life necessarily like all the, that what's under the sun is all that there is. He recognizes that God has given us. There's, there's this gift that God has given us of life. And he says to enjoy it while we can. And he, he looks off and knows that for every one of us, we are destined to the grave. We're destined to one day stand before our judge, who according to the passage that Tom read, will judge the secrets of the hearts of men. Every thought that we ever thought, everything we ever did, even those things we didn't think anybody else knew about, God sees all. And so we come to the conclusion 
of the book of Ecclesiastes, with everything that he's already said in mind, and he sums it all up, this is the end of the matter. Fear God and keep his commandments. Let's look at what he has to say. Beginning in verse 9, Ecclesiastes chapter 12, verse 9. Besides being wise, the preacher also taught the people knowledge, weighing and studying and arranging many proverbs with great care. The preacher sought to find words of delight, and uprightly he wrote words of truth. The words of the wise are like goads, and like nails firmly fixed are the collected sayings. They are given by one shepherd. (coughs) My son... Beware of anything beyond these, of the making of many books, there is no end, and much study is a weariness of the flesh. The end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you have given this to us. Lord, that you have spoken this to us to help us to understand things about your world that you've made, about the way you work in it. We pray that you would give us wisdom from your word, give us ears to hear and eyes to see. I pray that you would give me strength And grace as I preach your word in Jesus' name. Amen. Begins differently than what we've seen before. Um, Let me turn back to an earlier chapter. Chapter 1 and verse 12. He says, I, the preacher, have been king over Israel in Jerusalem, and I applied my heart to seek and to search out by wisdom all that is done under heaven. He speaks in the first person. He said, I, in my heart, said in my heart, in chapter 2, come now, I will test you with pleasure and enjoy yourself. But behold, this was also vanity. He changes the way he refers to himself here. Verse 9 Besides being wise, the preacher also taught the people knowledge, weighing and studying and arranging many proverbs with great care. So he's, it's a different person. It's gone from first person to third person. Uh, and I, I, as I said, the very first week when we looked at Ecclesiastes, there's, there's some question about who the author is. I mean, uh, it says... Um, you know, I was king in Jerusalem. So we think, you know, it, it very likely was Solomon, but at the same time, he never names himself as Solomon. Uh, I think this change in um, voice from first person to third person may indicate, here's a theory. You can take it or leave it. But maybe... It, the, the book of Ecclesiastes is Solomonic. That, that 
Solomon wrote what is basically the book of Ecclesiastes, maybe. And then later on, someone came back and wrote a few editorial notes. And I'm not saying those things aren't scripture. I think holy men who were moved by the Holy Spirit wrote scripture. So I, I, I do believe these are meant to be a part of God's word. But because of that change, uh, because of that change in voice, I think we might have here an editor uh, who has commended this work by Solomon. And he says, besides being wise, the preacher also taught the people knowledge, weighing and studying and arranging many proverbs with great care. He, he talks about the, the collecting of proverbs and great sayings. And isn't that what Solomon did? We have the book of Proverbs and it's a collection. We can see even in, in, in Proverbs, it tells us there are certain Proverbs that were by another person. And, and <coughs> uh, Lemuel, I think, was one of the people who wrote uh, some of the Proverbs and how King Solomon collected those things and gathered them together. He, he taught the people these wise sayings. The preacher, verse 10, sought to find words of delight and uprightly he wrote words of truth. And again, he's talking in the third person in this last section here of Ecclesiastes. You know, when we, when we have a book uh, today, oftentimes we look on the back side and on the back of the book, there'll be some kind of blurb is what we call it. Uh, commending a book. I think that's kind of what we have here. Um, where this editor, I think moved by the Holy Spirit, has commended these collection of writings by Solomon or by the preacher. Verse 11. The words of the wise are like goads, like nails firmly fixed are the collected sayings. Here we have two different ideas about these collection of sayings that the preacher has, has collected. First of all, they're like goads. What is a goad? Um, you may be familiar. I think when I think of a goad, I think of Acts chapter 9, Paul's conversion. And Jesus says to Paul on the road to Damascus, it's hard for you to kick against the goads. What's a goad? Uh, it, it, it's like a, an ancient cattle prod. Uh, you have this long stick, this pointy stick, and you're, you're pushing the animal along, and it causes pain in order to get them to go in the direction that you want them to go. And so the, here, the... the the author here of Ecclesiastes, this, the, these, these last verses of Ecclesiastes is telling us the words of the wise, these collected saints, this, this book here, Ecclesiastes, is meant to be a goad for us. It pushes us along. In spite of the vanity that life seems to be sometimes, in, in spite of the fact that it could seem pointless, the words of the preacher 
push us on to keep going when we might want to just sit back and give up. (coughs) He pushes us on. It's a go. And it also provides stability. The second part, he says, they're like nails firmly fixed of the collected sayings. Not only do they push us on, but they're firm, they're stable, they're unchanging. <coughs> then he says, they are given by one shepherd. Who's the shepherd? Is it Solomon? Is it the preacher? I, I talked earlier about how even Proverbs that are these collection of sayings that, that Solomon had gathered together, and some of them are even named by different authors. Okay, how can, if we even, if Scripture itself tells us there are different, then how can this author tell us they are given by one shepherd? I, I think this is how. When we look at the entire Old Testament, we see the words one shepherd three times in the whole Old Testament. Once is here, the other two times are in Ezekiel. And in Ezekiel, whenever it talks about God's people and shepherds, it talks about how the shepherds of Israel had failed about how the shepherds of Israel had abused God's people. And God said, then I'm going to come and I'm going to be their shepherd. And he looks forward to a time when there will be one who is like David, who will come and who will then rule over his people as one shepherd. We see this in Ecclesiastes, not in Ecclesiastes, in uh, (coughs) Ezekiel. Also, not only do we see that, but we see in the life of Jesus. In John chapter 10, Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. Using the same language that Ezekiel uses. I am the good shepherd. And then we look at an author like Peter. And Peter says that the Holy men of old who were moved by the Holy Spirit to write Scripture were carried along by the Spirit and and it says that the Spirit of Christ was indicating to them the things that were to happen. Jesus was the Good Shepherd. The Spirit of Christ was inspiring the things that were written in the Old Testament. Whatever it says... They are given by one shepherd. I know Jesus hadn't yet been born of a virgin, but we have the words of Jesus. We don't need a red letter Bible to tell us which words Jesus spoke. It's all Jesus. From beginning to end, they're given by one shepherd. And he tells us, my son, beware of anything beyond these. In the making of many books there is no end, and much study is wearisome, weariness of the flesh.
There is a warning to be heeded here. Oftentimes, we want to go beyond what Scripture teaches. We want to find something new, something novel, something we've never heard of before. And we, we go to, to new authors who, who try to tell us things about the Bible that nobody in church history has ever heard of before. Beware of going beyond these. Beware of anything beyond these. Of making of many books there is no end, and much study is a weariness of the flesh. The preacher had said, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. But what we are to do is fear God, enjoy life, and he commends here the the reading and the studying of the words of the one shepherd. I don't think these words of the one shepherd should be inclu- should be exclusively just limited to Ecclesiastes or even to the wise sayings written by by Solomon. But I think they include all of scripture. We don't go beyond that. We don't go trying to, to, to find God in other ways apart from Scripture. He reveals us Himself in His Word. And anything beyond these is a danger, according to the author here. Verse 13. The end of the matter has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. We've heard half of this before. And, and the, 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 if I'm right here that this is an editor, he's summarizing what the preacher has been saying all along. And he says, fear God and keep his commandments. We've heard the preacher say this. We've heard the preacher say, fear God, fear God. We've heard that throughout the text of Ecclesiastes. But if I'm right that this is an editor coming back later along, he's giving another interpretation along this. What does it mean to fear God? How should it look if we're fearing God? And he says, and keep his commandments. If we truly fear God, which to fear God is to worship him. It is not to be in dread of him or, or, or afraid of him to run the other way. But to fear God is to stand in awe of him and to worship him. And if we do that, if we stand in awe of Him, if we worship God, then we will keep His commandments. That keeping His commandments is not something we see in the rest of Ecclesiastes. But I think if I'm right about the way that this has been written... It's the interpretation, and I think inspired interpretation, 
of the blurb at the end of the book. Fear God and keep his commandments. This is the whole duty of man. You know, Jesus was asked, what is the greatest commandment? And Jesus' answer, love the Lord your God with all of your heart and soul and strength. And the second is likened to it, love your neighbor as yourself. Are these inconsistent? Jesus was saying, that is the whole law altogether summed up. And the preacher here says, the whole duty of man is to fear God and keep his commandments. Are they contradictory? Rhetorical question. No. To love God and to love our neighbor is completely consistent with fearing God. Standing in awe of him. And keeping his commandments. How do we love our neighbor? We can only love our neighbor in a way that is consistent with keeping his commandments. If we think that loving our neighbor somehow involves disobeying one of his commandments, then we have been, we have in, been in error. So often we think, well, if we want to love our neighbor, then we can't say anything about their sin. We just want to keep hands off and be non-judgmental. But if we love our neighbor, it will be consistent with keeping his commands. And we will speak where the Bible speaks. We will, I think of church discipline and that Matthew 18 process of going to the one who's in sin as imitating the good shepherd. If you look at Matthew 18, where it talks about go to the person who's in sin and then go to them, if they don't repent, go to them with uh, uh, another with you and then bring it before the whole church. The story right before that is where Jesus tells the story of the good shepherd who goes after, leaves the 99 and goes after the one. They're right next to each other. I think when a church or when believers go after their brother or sister that's caught in sin, we're imitating the good shepherd. This good shepherd who gave us these Collected sayings. We're imitating the good shepherd and we are going after the one whenever the 99 are doing just fine. That's a little bit of an aside. I had to speak on that though because so much in our culture we think of if we love our neighbor then we're never going to say anything about their sin. But loving our neighbor is intricately tied with keeping his commandments and fearing God more than man. Verse 10, or verse 14. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. 
We fear God. We keep His commandments. The writer here gives the basis for that of knowing that there is a coming judgment. That's complicated here in Ecclesiastes. We've talked about this before. At, at one point, you know, the preacher tells us, well, they both go to the same place. Both man and beast, they both die and they both go to the same place, the grave. But yet, there's still this expectation that for all these things, God will bring you into judgment. That, that theme goes throughout Ecclesiastes. And here we see it in the last line. For every hidden thought, for every secret thing that we do, God will bring us into judgment. We see that also in Romans. We see that in other places. There is a judgment coming. Our motivation in the New Testament has changed. In the Old Covenant, as the the law is given, the motivation seems to be this fear of an expected judgment. And yet, in the New Testament, we see that Jesus has come. Jesus has come, and He has been both the judge and our advocate. He has been both the priest and our sacrifice. Justice has to be done. And God was going to come and He was going to judge every thought and every secret deed. And the passage Tom read said that Jesus is the one who will come and He will judge every secret thought of our hearts. He is both the judge and our advocate. When we place our faith in Him, we flee to Him and we we ask God, count Jesus' sacrifice on my behalf. When we come to that judgment day, we don't stand in fear and trembling but we can stand boldly before our Father as Jesus presents us to Him saying, this is my bride. See her in all of her spotless beauty as I have washed her by the Word. I have washed her by my precious blood. Does that mean we don't fear God? No. But ultimately, we don't have to tremble in and cower in, in a way that is dread. We do stand in awe of Him and, and fear in a delightful way. We think of fear as always so negative. But the fear of the Lord, when it is the true fear of the Lord, it ought to cause us to delight and to love Him all the more.
for what he has done. What more can we stand in awe of him for than the fact that God sent his son to be our sacrifice for us? That ought to cause us to tremble and to rejoice. Thank you.